And we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. One of the perils of being a long standing attender at Richland is that uh, every holiday I get a bit sentimental as I come and celebrate Christmas and Easter. You see, the first 18 years of my life, I didn't celebrate them in the church. And so they have special significance to me when I get to celebrate those holidays within the church. Certainly Christmas is significant. But I I would have to say that Easter, Easter is, is on the top of that sentimentality list for me. I remember back as a child um, in our home, uh, certainly Worship was never part of Easter. Resurrection wasn't part of it. Christianity had little to do with it. And I really remember then one particular Easter Sunday morning where I got up anticipating there would be something. And uh, for some reason, there wasn't anything. Kept thinking, maybe later in the day it'll come. And it didn't. And the reason I share that story is that I don't think I ever felt a more hollow day in all of my life as I reflect back on it than that particular day. I'm not even sure what age I was. And the question I ask myself every time I come to Easter is why? Why such a hollow sense of a Sunday, Easter Sunday in particular? I really believe it's because of all of the Sundays of the church, of all of the celebrations of the church, Of all of the days that we put special significance in, there is none higher and really more significant, really, than Easter. Because on Easter, something happened. And what happened is that our Savior, Jesus Christ, was raised bodily from the dead, resurrected by the Father. And without that resurrection, without that resurrection, we might as well just pack it up and go home. There's no significance to the truth of Scripture. There's no significance really to any of the revelation that God gives us if we don't have Easter. Even the incarnation itself, without Easter, we can't be sure of. We can't be certain of. And so Easter is the climax of all of God's revelation to us. And without it, none of the rest of it would matter at all. And I think that's why there was a sense of of real hollowness at Easter time. In this particular text, Paul states five negatives if Christ has not been raised. If there was no Easter, there was no resurrection, bodily resurrection of Christ, 
five things would, uh, would be different than they are. First of all, and I want to just look at those, we're going to look first at the negative, and then I want to spin them a bit and turn them to the positive. But the negatives are the preaching or the word of the apostles, of Paul himself, all of the witness that they made to the Christ would be of no value if there was no resurrection from the dead, if Christ had in fact not bodily been resurrected. Their faith would be in vain, it says in Scripture, and it would be futile. There would just be a futility about everything if Christ had not been raised. In the middle of that, that passage, it says we would still be in our sins. There would be no hope of forgiveness if Christ had not been raised. The people dead in Christ would have no hope. And as we anticipate death who are alive, there would be no hope beyond the grave. And then finally in this particular portion of Scripture, in verse 19, he caps it all by saying this, if in this life we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied if there is no resurrection. In other words, basically what Paul is saying is, if there's no resurrection, go eat, drink, and be merry. Because that's it. That's all. And you better get it all now. We are to be the most pitied. But all of that is turned on its head. All of that is flipped over because the scripture says Christ has been raised. And in fact, the scripture says he is the first fruit of others who will be raised, all those who put their hope in him. He's the first. By first fruits, it means he's the first. And because he was raised, all whose hope in him will also be raised. The amazing thing, I don't have time to unpack it this morning, but one of the amazing things to think about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is that he doesn't go back. He doesn't step back away from the incarnation after he once comes. He is fully God and fully man forever because of the resurrection. It is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, the first fruits of many thousands upon thousands who will follow him in that resurrection if their hope is in him. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to comprehend that he, he, doesn't, he doesn't become fully man for 33 or so years and then revert back, but forever and ever. And we'll talk more of that as we come to the end of this time. But now let me turn these things to the positive. Let me tell you, because he has been raised, because there's more evidence of the resurrection than nearly any other event in all of history, he has been raised from the dead. And many witnesses saw that and gave witness to others who saw that. And Christendom all around the world today is celebrating the fact that he is risen Risen bodily from the grave. The grave could not hold him. We have these things to rest in. First of all, the very first thing is the resurrection guarantees the forgiveness for all believers. Look at it there in the scripture this morning. In verse 17, it says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. But then you go down to verse 20 in all of these, and it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised. And so you are not if your hope is in Christ, still in your sin. There is no greater need in any human heart anywhere on this planet today 
than to know that your sin will not be held against you. Does everybody recognize that need? No. Does some cover that need? Does some kind of push that need down into their life and it comes out in other ways? Yes. But I say to you, there is no more fundamental need and no more basic need, no more important need to know than to know that your sin will not be held against you. The songs we sang this morning talked about that. God's wrath has been turned away by Christ. To know that in your life, to know that you will not pay for your sin. There's nothing that changes a life more dramatically than really having that settle down into your heart and into your soul. I said I didn't grow up in the church, and I didn't. I was 18 years old when I first entered in, really, into a church for in any significant way for any period of time. But before that, some things were troubling my soul. And one of the things that was troubling my soul deeply was, what about my sin? What about those things that I knew were wrong, that I knew I had offended God in? How could I know that, that I would not be held accountable for those? I went through all kinds of gymnastics to rid myself of that guilt. I, I, don't, I don't know exactly when it started to come, but it started to fall upon me at, at a grade school level. One of my first realizations of that was in a fifth grade, I think it was, when they started to pass out Gideon Bibles. In my school at that period of time, they were still giving them out actually in the classroom. And I remember getting that Bible, and I remember how precious it was to me, so precious that I traded others for multiple copies of it. Why, I don't know, but there was something that intrigued me. Part of the intrigue was in that I, I knew that inherent in that book had something to do with the guilt I was feeling. And I attempted to begin to read it, but it, it, didn't, it didn't take my guilt away. In fact, that guilt began to grow even stronger and stronger as I came into my junior high years, into my high school years. That sense that I knew I needed to find an answer to the point where I've shared before that I promised God that I would go to church at Easter time. I would go, and at that point in my life, I had not been baptized, and I had the idea that somehow baptism might be some magic key for this. I promised I'll go and I'll be baptized. And I, I wrestled with that for those years of my high school. And I promised and yet never carried through in that promise until at the age of 18, I went to a concert one evening in my high school auditorium in an evening, and Youth for Christ uh, had been putting it on and was putting it on. And at that point, I, I began to see, began to see that there was a remedy for my sin and it was centered in Christ. I didn't fully understand then, but I knew enough to run to Christ. And so I began the journey, my journey of faith as I, as I ran to Christ. And the fundamental need of my heart began to find an answer. The resurrection declares that the fundamental need of your heart, that there's an answer for that. And, and Christ uh, was raised from the dead. And, and how can we know that that's an answer? How in the world, what does the resurrection have to do with, with the forgiveness? I thought, and you thought, that it had to do with his death, and it did. Christ died for our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins. He took the full brunt of the wrath of the Father for us. And as I said in my Sunday school class this morning, it's hard to comprehend this, but for us to experience that, anyone outside of Christ will experience that for eternity. 
If Christ is not your Savior, if He is not your wrath-bearer, if He's not the one who has paid the penalty for your sin and your hope rests there, then you will pay that penalty, the Scripture says, for an eternity. And it's hard to understand and comprehend, but in those three days, an infinite God paid an infinite penalty for my sin and all who will put their hope in Christ. That's what it's about. And certainly it has to do with his death. So then what does this resurrection have to do? What's the resurrection? What part does it play in it? The resurrection plays the part in the fact that the father looked upon the sacrifice and he said, this sacrifice is sufficient. And because it's sufficient and because it was performed by a spotless lamb, he raised Christ from the dead. The resurrection is a confirmation that your sin can be forgiven because the payment was made in full for all who will believe, for all who will cast themselves on Christ. I pray this morning you know that. One of the prayers of this body of believers over the years, for many years now, is that in our surrounding communities, in our surrounding communities, that exactly what happened to me, maybe the picture won't look the same, but people all around us will come to the understanding that their most fundamental need is a need to know that their sin won't be held against them. And the way we think people will give testimony to that and have is that, that they might awaken in the night and all of a sudden the realization that I need to do something I need to do something to know that my sin won't be held against me. Or pictures like that. We're praying that because it is the, the most loving prayer we can pray. That God would help people to see that the resurrection is confirmation that you don't have to bear that. You don't have to awaken in the night and wonder. You don't have to go through gymnastics as I went through them, trying to somehow shake it off of your shoulders. But that in fact, if we look to Christ... We look to him. He has paid the price. And the confirmation of that is the resurrection from the dead by the Father. We sang this morning this song. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Where does the Christian look? Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. Christ has been raised, and we don't have to wonder about our sin. The second longing of the human heart, really, and the second thing that the resurrection does for us and satisfies is, is the sense in which there is something or someone that we can bank our lives on. In essence, the negative of that is if, if Christ has not been raised, your, your faith is in vain and it's futile. In other words, what you are hoping in will do nothing for you if Christ hasn't been raised. You see, it's an interesting thing about faith. Sometimes people say, just have faith. Just have faith. That's a foolish statement. Because faith isn't what does it. Faith is what connects us to what does it. It is the object of that faith that matters. Faith in itself will do nothing. But faith in the right place can do everything. And Paul here says, if, if all you have is faith, it's vain faith. If all you have is faith, it's futile faith if it's in an unresurrected Christ. But the flip of that, but now Christ 
has been raised. And so it's not futile. All of us long for something or someone, really, that we know we can trust, that will never let us down, that's with us through thick and thin, and you know that you can absolutely count on them always. Always. And you'll never find that in this life. No matter how good a friend you have, we're all, we're all fallible. But this friend is different. This resurrected Christ is different. When I was struggling in my early Christian days, as I came to see this Christ, this is a passage of scripture that came to me in Psalm 25. Let me read it to you because what it says to us is your faith does not have to be in vain. It does not have to be futile. If it's in this Christ, he is a Christ who will never, never fail you. Listen to what it says. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me never be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. That passage of scripture where it says, none who trust in you, none who wait for you will ever be put to shame. What is that saying? It's saying that this Christ who has been resurrected, if you put your hope in him, you will not experience the ultimate shame. The ultimate shame of being banished one day from the presence of God forever will never occur if that's where your hope is, if that's where your faith is. It's not a vain faith. It's not a futile faith. But it is a faith well-founded because of the resurrection of Christ. And then thirdly, there's a third thing that the resurrection guarantees. It, resur- it guarantees truth. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but it goes back to the last couple of weeks where I've talked specifically to young people, but I think really to everybody. Because there's this kind of foreboding sense in all of our culture today that there's no truth out there. How can we know this truth? How can we know that this is right and this is wrong? We did it in the context of shingles over the doors of churches. How do you know? There's so many voices out there. There's so many shingles. How can you know anything? And young people sometimes have accepted the lie that this is just what my parents brought me in. There can't be any truth. We can't know it. Now I've said in the context of that that no church has it all right. But I also say to you that this passage says because of the resurrection of Christ, we can know some things. In fact, in this particular passage, as we look at it here in, in the scripture, in, in this particular context of Corinthians, look there with me at going back to f- chapter 15. It says this, our preaching is in vain if Christ is not raised. And it goes on to say we would be found misrepresenting God if Christ has not been raised. But Christ has been raised. The negative, our preaching's in vain, we'd be misrepresenting, we'd be false witnesses, but the inference of this passage is we are not false witnesses. And what did they witness to? They witnessed to Christ. They gloried in Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what I've said to you these last few weeks, young people, and to all of you, is that you need to glory in Christ. That is the truth. The passage that we were in in Philippians, as we've been going through Philippians, is it says they gloried in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That is where you need to rest. Is your hope today in the resurrection of Christ? Is that where it rests? Is the full weight of your hope there? I say to you this morning, you can have confidence in that. Christ will not fail you. 
And what the witnesses have testified to centers there in the gospel. If you go up here earlier in this passage, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. That's what he's preaching in in chapter 15. And that gospel considers that Christ died in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day as confirmation that all that he did preceding that was accepted by the Father. And I say to you this morning, young people, don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie that you cannot know the truth. There is a truth to be known. And if it centers in, in things like 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that is where it lies. Now, on the periphery, do people get it wrong? Does every church have it right? No. But we can know the center. And the center is the gospel, Christ. The things that are declared here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so if you've not considered them because you've thought there's no way to know, I hope you'll reconsider. I hope you will realize because of the resurrection of Christ, you can know. You can know that your sin will not be held against you. And then we go on to the fourth thing. The resurrection makes certain that you can know that you have a life well spent. You can know that you have a life well spent. There's a longing in all of our hearts this morning that, that we would not waste our life. All of us have a sense and was, I don't want my life to be wasted. I don't want my life to be thrown away. I want my life to mean something. That is not a wrong longing. Now, it can take you wrong places if you go to find that in the wrong place. If you try to find that significance in other things other than what we're talking about here, certainly it can get you in trouble. And in fact, you may get your 70 or 80 years... That's what the Bible says, 70 or 80 years if you have the strength. But many people come to those 70 or 80 years and if they've misplaced that living a life well spent, all of a sudden it turns to sand in their hand and it has really no meaning and they they tend to despair in those kinds of times. It's what causes a lot of midlife kind of stuff that happens in the life of adults is that they realize they've placed it in the wrong place and they've tried to live a life well spent in the wrong areas. But the scripture says we can know that we have had a life well spent because of the resurrection of Christ. That's what it means in verse 19 where it says, If, this, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, I meant that this morning when I said, If Christ is not raised from the dead, you just as well go out and get all the merriment And all the gusto you can get in this life, wherever you might find it, because that's all you're going to get. It's over. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's what Paul would say. If Christ has not been raised. But he has been raised. And so he says, that's not the way to go. That's not the avenues to pursue. In other words, all of the obedience, and all of the love, and all of the self-denial for the sake of the king will one day pay grand dividend to you. It's the same kind of thing where Jesus, it says, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him endured the cross and its shame. For what? For the fact that he knew that one day there would be a resurrected life. One day he would be resurrected from the grave. And not only he would be resurrected, but all who looked to him would be resurrected to join him. And the joy that Jesus saw was the multitude of people who would 
see that the resurrection gives confirmation of all that I've talked about. And a life well spent of following Christ is a good life because Christ has been raised. Young people, one of the things that I have said often to my children, and whether they hear it and whether they put it all into their lives, only God can do that. But one of the things I've tried to say to them is this statement concerning high school, concerning the days you spend in high school, is understand there's life after high school. There's life after high school. My hope was that that would help them to fight peer pressure and to fight some of the things that come in upon you in high school if you think that's the only world that you will ever have. But if you can somehow realize there's life after that, there's something after that, you're willing to forego some things for the sake of that. It's the same thing we're talking about here. Paul said that that a life well spent is a life that understands there is more than just these 70 or 80 years. There's life after that. There's eternal life forever with a risen Christ. And a life well spent is worth it, whatever the sacrifice it might be, whatever you might have to endure in this life for the sake of his glory and for the sake of his kingdom is worth it. That's the kind of thing that causes people to go places and to take the gospel to places that are hard because they realize for the joy set before them, they have a deep settled confidence that that the resurrection says that to follow Christ is a life well spent and it will not be in vain. And then finally, the last thing that it says to us this morning is that a resurrected Christ guarantees that the dead in Christ will one day be resurrected. The dead in Christ will one day be resurrected. Look at what the passage says in verse 18. It says it in the negative again, but it says this. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Christ has not been raised. But Christ has been raised. And so the inference there is those who have fallen asleep in Christ have not perished and will not perish and will one day be with him forever. That's what the gospel's about. The hope of the gospel, the hope of our sins not being held against us is in Christ. And this morning, I just say to you, is that where your hope rests? Do you see the, God, the resurrection of Christ as the confirmation that the gospel is true, that Christ did die for your sin, that he was buried but that the resurrection declares all of that was sufficient for your sin. Is that where your hope rests? Do you rest in the finished work of Christ? When Jesus was on the cross, he declared, it is finished. I've done everything that I need to do for the sake of your sin. And then it says that today he's seated as he ascended back to the Father at the right hand of the Father, interceding interceding with the Father for all who will trust him and trust that finished work. I hope this morning, if you in any way have been ambivalent or haven't, haven't really considered the resurrection of Christ, to understand that that is the central event of all history. It's the capstone of all Christianity. You take the resurrection out, you take away anything that Christianity means. But to put it in means everything because it was the declaration of the Father that the Son 
had done it perfectly for all who will look to him. These last days, I have talked often to you, in fact, for several years now, talked to you about the concept of heaven and the importance that we get a proper picture of heaven. One of my concerns for children is that heaven doesn't look very appealing to them. And part of the reason for that is because I think they get a picture of heaven that isn't a proper picture. I believe that scripture teaches that the heavens and the earth will come together. And that the heaven will be here. That will be on a resurrected earth with a resurrected Christ in our resurrected bodies. I say that, and I've said it before, that you speak those kinds of pictures of clouds and harps and all of those kinds of things to, a, to maybe a child who struggles with, with uh, ADHD, the kind of thing where he just has trouble sitting still. And you give him that picture of heaven and that doesn't look very appealing to him because I think it's an improper picture of heaven. You see, the picture of heaven goes back to what I just said to you about the fact that Christ became incarnate. And by incarnate, it means Christ took on manhood. He didn't leave his deity. He was fully God and fully man. But when he came in Bethlehem, he came to put on manhood. So, so he was fully man and fully God. But when he got done, when he was resurrected, what was resurrected? It was the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He didn't cease to be incarnate in the sense that he was fully man and fully God. He continues. And so one day, for the Christian, we will live on a resurrected earth with a resurrected Christ in a resurrected body. And the confirmation of that is the resurrection itself. I, I think often, I think often of the sorrow there's going to be one day for some who held on so closely to this life and didn't really consider the resurrection and didn't really consider their sin. In fact, pushed that need down in their lives so deep that they, they didn't even realize they felt it. And one day to realize that all that they held on to so tightly was just a reflection, really a poor reflection of what God was going to give them forever one day on a resurrected earth. The difference between the earth we know and that resurrected earth, which is this earth, is the fact that sorrow and sin and all of that stuff is gone and we have no concept of what that's like. We have no concept of an earth without that. Even the very best things you can think of this life pale in comparison to what that will be like. We have no concept of how much sin has tainted this existence. But I still say to you, there will be much more continuity in the afterlife than discontinuity. A resurrected earth, a resurrected Christ in a resurrected body, along with us in our resurrected bodies forever and ever. The glories of Calvary. And it all hinges on the resurrection. If there be no resurrection, don't listen to anything I said. 
But if there is a resurrection, listen intently to what Paul tells us about it in this book. Let's stand and sing together. farther from what we were in this morning. It says this, For as a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. After destroying every rule, and every authority, and every power. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the first fruits of what we look toward. That one day, 
all who look to you and have put their hope in you will be raised just as you have been raised. And Lord, we'll live forever and ever on a heavens and earth that has come together in resurrected bodies with our resurrected Lord. Lord, I pray this morning, if, if there's some here who don't know the reality of that, as I didn't for 18 years of my life, Lord, that, that Father, they will pursue it. They will come to see the significance of the resurrection of Christ for themselves. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.